1: I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the battlefront and hear about some of the incredible work done by Ukrainian medical professionals near the front lines.
3: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we
1: give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job.
0: Slava,
3: Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
1: Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 23rd of October, 2023, one year and 241 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today is Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and our guests, writer and historian Justin Morozzi and Dr Oksana Tryan from the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, or MOAS, medical charity. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine.
0: Sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So Russian forces continuing their push around Avdivka to the east of the country, despite the failure of efforts last week, which seemingly resulted in very heavy casualties. Ukrainian military officials say Russia Russian forces lost 50 tanks, another 100 armoured vehicles and 900 personnel during attacks around Avdivka last week. We've no way of verifying that, but a lot of the social media that we've seen does speak of huge casualties and very, very poor tactics. So those numbers could very easily be um, accurate. Uh, Institute for the Study of War, citing a prominent Russian mill blogger, uh, well, sorry, are citing a Russian mill blogger who's claimed that Ukrainian forces counterattacked in the direction of Pisky, which is about eight k southwest of Donetsk city itself, and pushed Russian forces from positions in the area. Although other Russian sources disputed that in fairly voluble fashion, um, as you might expect. Now, geolocated footage, which which we can put more credibility and more credence on. Geolocated footage from Saturday indicates Russian forces have made marginal advances southeast of Permaiska, which is uh, that's about 10 k southwest of Avdivka, 5 k northwest of Donetsk city itself. So still, it looks like Russia is still very much pushing to try and take Avdivka, a two-pronged attack from the south and the north, trying to envelop the city. Not of any great strategic Interest there that the city itself uh, it seems more symbolic, a bit like Bakhmut was last year. Russia hasn't had a, a significant victory of any scale really for a while, so they're pushing hard there. But the tactics are just the same as before, and they are losing a lot of people and equipment. Back to the weekend and um, Russian missile strikes killed at least six postal workers, wounding another sixteen on Saturday when they hit a mail depot in Ukraine's northeastern Kharkiv region, according to officials. President Zelensky shared a video on social media of what appeared to be a very heavily damaged warehouse surrounded by rubble uh, and a container with the logo of Ukrainian postal operator Novoposhta. Kharkiv Regional Governor Oleg Sigibanov said at least six dead and 14 injured as a result of the occupier's attack were employees of the company who were inside the Novoposhta terminal. He continued, the victims, aged between 19 and 42, received shrapnel wounds and blast injuries. He then finished off by saying of those injured being treated in hospital, at least seven were in a serious condition. The Ministry of Internal Affairs confirmed that death toll, but then um, uh, updated the number of injured to 16, which is what I said at the start. Now, Sergei Nozhka, who works for uh, Pošta, he described the condition of some of his colleagues as mild to moderate severity, adding there are some people in a very serious condition, as you'd expect from high explosive. He said a rocket flew into the neighbouring depot, but at hours two, the windows and shutters flew out. This is not the first time. According to the regional prosecutor's office, Russian forces in the Belgorod region north of Kharkiv, so in in Russia, over the border in Russia, fired S-300 missiles, two of which hit the warehouse. Dmitry Chubenko, who's the office spokesman, he told Ukraine's state broadcaster, debris analysis continues at the site in order to establish the exact number of injured and dead. Next, on Sunday, officials in the south of Ukraine said the Russian military had used a record number of aerial bombs over the Hezon region in the previous 24 hours, so Saturday to Sunday. Natalia Humenyuk, who's the spokesperson for the Ukrainian military's operational command south, said 36 missiles had been recorded over the area, some villages hit by several strikes. And then in their daily update on Saturday, the ISW said Russian forces could well be diversifying the mix of missiles, guided bombs, drones, all the other bits and bobs. They're using in strikes at the moment on Ukraine, possibly in an an attempt to find gaps in Ukraine's air defences, technical and geographic ahead of further strikes that are anticipated for the winter, just like last winter, the, the sort of war on energy. Expecting that again this winter, and they're looking for looking for gaps in the defences. Then also, uh, sticking with Sunday, in fact, last night, in fact, Russian shelling hit a thermal power station in the Donetsk region, according to officials in Kyiv. The Interior Ministry said there'd been a large fire, and DTEC, Ukraine's largest private energy company, reported one of its thermal power stations had been shelled by Russia, but no further details there of, of any injuries or damage. And then today, Ukraine's Air Force said overnight Sunday to Monday it had shot down 14 drones, including 13 uh, the Iranian-made 131 one three one one three six and another unspecified drone, as well as a cruise missile. Um, just looking at the um, British Defence Intelligence updates over the weekend, just worth pointing out. I think this was, I think this was Saturday's actually, um, but they're talking about Adivka, um They're saying that the recent assaults, last week's assaults on Adivka have contributed to a ninety percent increase in Russian casualties recorded by Ukrainian MOD. As again di- said, it's difficult. Impossible for us to verify those figures. But since February last year, so the British Ministry of Defence saying, Russia has significantly increased its force footprint on the ground in Ukraine by intensifying recruitment using financial incentives. The partial mobilisation conducted last autumn, which we know was, was deeply unpopular in the country, which is why the Putin's continued to try to mobilise by stealth. British Defence Intelligence saying, that increase in personnel is the major factor behind Russia's ability to both defend and, held territory and conduct costly assaults they say it's likely that russia has suffered 150 to 190,000 permanent casualties so that's killed and permanently wounded since february last year with the total figure including temporarily wounded i.e. those who either have recovered or or, or could be expected to go back to service in the region of 240 to 290,000 that 290,000 figure tallies with the the latest estimates from from the Ukrainian authorities. Now, that does not include Wagner or any of the other mercenary groups or the prisoner battalions who were were forced to fight in Bakhmut. It probably also doesn't include fighters from the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, you know, the militia there, but they are staggering figures and speak of I mean, it's very tricky. How do you train your military whilst in contact with the enemy? Do you, do you take your experienced people away from the front in order to train the next cohort, and thereby you know you take a gap where the fighting is, or do you use less experienced people, madly scrambling through the PowerPoint slides and the and the than the notes and the books and the and the doctrine of old? trying to make sense of it and then and, and training people themselves but you know it is, it is a it is a tricky a very tricky problem experienced just to a su- similar but lesser degree by ukraine i would suggest because they are the the training of ukrainian service personnel is ca- is continuing by external supporters of ukraine outside of the country so that to a certain degree they that is alleviated but just the numbers the scale of it is is still a very very significant problem for ukraine and i'll uh, i'll take a little pause there david well, thank you very much, Dominicals,
1: for all of that. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce Justin Morozzi and Dr. Oksana Trojan from uh, medical charity MOAS. Just to start us off, Justin and Oksana, would you like to just introduce yourselves and explain a little bit about what you've been doing in Ukraine?
3: Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Oksana. I'm an anesthesiologist and I work in MOAS. It's an organization which uh, carries uh, patients, evacuate patients from uh, frontline uh, hospitals light hospitals to mayor regional ukraine hospitals uh, also we work at stabilization point near front line and uh, have two am- ambulances with uh, ophthalmological and general care uh, support uh, we uh, do, do, do it in uh, places where is uh, no other medical aid
2: thank you very much oksana justin Hi, David. Very good to join you. I first came across MOAS earlier this spring when a friend asked me if I would like to drive an ambulance out to Ukraine with him. Uh, And I did and was incredibly impressed by what I saw. It's an organization of 150, all Ukrainian, well-paid medics, nurses and drivers. And it's a very niche job they do, which is providing emergency evacuation to critically injured soldiers. So most NGOs are not comfortable working so closely with the military. (laughs) MOAS is exceptional in that it does exactly that, because that is where the greatest need is. And as we speak, MOAS has saved more than 30,000 lives, hasn't lost a single soldier under their care, operating with 50 ambulances and 150 medical staff and drivers.
1: Can I ask, just to start us off, Things I know Dom's got lots of questions, when you describe a stabilisation point, Justin and Oksana, could you just paint us a picture of what does that actually look like when you're at one? What, what, if you could describe it to listeners through your mind's eye, what's at a stabilisation point and what does it do?
3: uh at stabilization point uh, wounded a wounded person uh, can receive first medical aid it's professional aid they surgeons anesthesiologists traumatologists etc and their patient can be intubated so and have maybe some small operation and it's uh, it's first doctor uh, which patient can see it's uh, high skilled doctors
1: thank you oksana and justin if you just like to describe what does it look
2: like I th- the, the stabilization points I've seen, they, they vary quite a lot. MOAS is operating at multiple locations, all behind the front line, but quite close to the front line. You know, In some cases, let's say 20 kilometers or something like that. Um, in some of the locations, MOAS are co-located with uh, Ukrainian army medics, and those tend to be some of the more dangerous positions, which have received incoming fire as well. They vary between small, pristine, um, some are slightly ramshackle, All the ones I've seen have been very well supplied in terms of medical equipment and and supplies. In some of these locations, you have a a MOAS surgeon, in addition to being anesthesiologist. Most of the MOAS teams, I should say, well, sorry, all of them have a doctor in their team three people teams and the importance of having an anesthetist they call them anesthesiologists here the importance of having that level of of professionalism is that you can keep an intubated patient alive on what in ukraine can be extremely long Evacuations. Oxana, for example, one of her most uh, typical routes is a four-hour evacuation to the nearest regional hospital. So it's an eight-hour round trip, and in, 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 she's just been telling me. In some occasions, she's doing two of those a day, working twenty-hour days. Unfortunately, there is a very high injury toll.
0: Justin and Oksana, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'd be keen, first of all, to just have a look at a look at the organisation, if if I may. So, Justin, if you wouldn't mind introducing Moas how where, where it first came about from and how it became involved in Ukraine and oksana your your own personal story were you involved in were you in, in the medical profession before the start of the full scale invasion how did you get involved with Moas and 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 in this uh, in this specialism in particular
2: thanks i I'll, I'll kick off then with some background on Moas uh, 2013 chris katrin and his uh, wife were in the Mediterranean on holiday and came across a discarded uh, man's overcoat in, in the water alongside them. They were on having a lovely holiday, realized that this coat was probably clothing from a migrant who may well have drowned. And it was like an epiphany for them. They set up this humanitarian organization called MOAS, and that stands for Migrant Offshore Aid Station. And they Chris bought a ship and literally started fishing migrants out of the Mediterranean. They, they saved up to, I think, around 40,000 lives. So a decade on, the war in Ukraine uh, was about to kick off. Chris actually pre you know, arrived before the war, a month or two, anticipating there would be a need for some humanitarian services. He wasn't quite sure what. And I think swiftly came to the conclusion that there would be a huge need for frontline medical care with an emergency evacuation operation. Because as said a moment ago, A lot of organizations aren't comfortable working so closely with the military, and he he forecasts a lack of capacity in their area, and and MOAS has been helping fill that. So I'll pass over to Oksana for her personal background with MOAS.
3: I joined MOAS about uh, 10 months ago, about a year. uh, Before, I worked at civilian hospital, and we treat wounded soldiers and civilians as well. And I thought I can do more. I'm not afraid and I can work uh, closer to front lines. So I left my hospital and joined MOAS. So now I feel myself more like realized professionally. Thanks
0: both. And Oksana, just sticking on that, you say you treat civilians and the military. Can you tell us where the dividing lines are between the work MOAS does and the established Ukrainian military medical services, how you fit into it all?
2: I'm just going to explain I'll jump in a bit on that, Dom, if I may. The overwhelming majority of MOAS patients are critically injured soldiers. That means that they're they're in imminent danger of of death if they're not um, given the right care. MOAS has an agreement with the Ministry of Health to be providing the services it does, which are directly to the Ukrainian armed forces. Having said that, there is is also a civilian health care that MOAS offers through two mobile medical units, and these provide ophthalmological yes, 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 services yes, yes,
1: yes. and
2: primary health care. Like, like for us Brits, that would be GP services. But the ambulance operation is almost exclusively soldiers.
0: Gotcha. Thanks. Uh, Oksana, is there anything st- such as a typical day for you? Could you describe such a thing if it exists?
3: Typically, we start work, work more work usually at the evenings or night. We came to the field hospitals, pick up patients. Uh, we treat. Uh, his, we treat patients before, if or, or um, prepare uh, them uh, for road if they need. And after after preparing, we we bring patients to the main regional hospitals on the east of Ukraine, like this we have several locations, and at my previous location, there was like two or three hours trip. now it can take about eight or nine hours. so it it like quite hard for patients and for doctors be taken us for so long distance. Thanks. justin, if
0: if I may, I'm really interested in the the differentiation. That you emphasized earlier on between or to say that all of MoAS people are staff, they are employees, not volunteers, and that's a very, very specific reason that you mentioned or you, as we were chatting earlier on. Can you just talk to us about why that was so important that you're, the, the model of MoAS is to have pay well-paid staff rather than well-meaning volunteers.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question and, and, and very interesting, Dom. I, I arrived this summer, by which time the volunteer model had already um, been taken over by the paid Ukrainian staff model. What happened, I believe, in the earliest days, so this is going back to February, lots of interest, lots of volunteers coming from all over the world, um, UK, US, South Africa, Israel, um, it, it Eventually, it didn't work out so well because a lot of the volunteers were, were chopping and changing, going on leave, rotating, kind of as they felt like it, I think, because there wasn't that kind of discipline of being a paid employee. And at some point, Chris came to that decision of, you know, we need professional paid uh, Ukrainians. And at that point, it went over to hundred percent Ukrainian model, which is really impressive. You know, it's, this is not foot f- crawling with foreign medics; it's the opposite. There are no foreign medics. There are no foreign drivers. Everyone in the team Ukrainian. And someone you know, like Oksana, who's I, I noticed has been compared to a modern day Florence Nightingale, highly qualified, highly professional, incredibly committed, patriotic, and all of the teams have their Oksana characters as the senior medic, the senior. Uh an the
0: Thanks. Now Oksana, we we've heard various reports of medical facilities and ambulances being directly targeted by, by Russian forces. Have you any experience of that? Has there any been any locations you've been at that have been under fire when it's been clearly marked as a medical facility or any of your ambulances ever been contact, in contact? I think you mentioned
2: there was that time you your convoy was, was there there was some Russian fire and you had to stop and and, with, and you had a patient in your ambulance.
3: Oh yes, it was funny story. At once, we uh, there was like a Shahid behind us.
2: That's the Iranian drone, the Shahid.
3: And we stopped and switch off lights uh, in our car. And we was wearing a team always wear uh, bulletproof jackets, and we have helmet on our heads. But my patient, he was conscious, and he was. Uh, like naked, just in blanket, in medical, uh, some medical uh, clothes. So when this uh, head was about us, we <laughs> it was it was about uh, a bit scary and. Uh, a patient was scared as well because we was uh, totally equipment and he was uh, naked and I told him if if like was some explosion I rely on him and he told like uh, oh uh, finally something good happens to him like like
0: this. Steady on, Oksana. It's not that kind of show. Uh... <laughs> And a Can
2: couple just, of other locations, I should add, more seriously as well, have been hit. No one has been killed, but there have been a number of injuries in, in different locations from Russian artillery fire.
0: God, that's terrible. And how do, how does the team, how do you then manage the team? What kind of specialisms do you have across all the, or the, the, or the medical professionals you have? And how do you, you organise where they go in the country and, and, and what kind of rotors and, and what have you?
3: So it's an anesthesiologists, we have surgeons, traumatologists, and otolaryngologists, one I, I know, but there is different uh, specialists and uh, different locations, so I maybe don't know about all locations. Uh, the no the
2: anesthetists are the core, the kind of theme that runs through the MOAS teams, that every single team has an, an anesthetist, as opposed to just maybe um, a lesser qualified paramedic. And all of the team members are also qualified in in emergency, what do you not met well met emergency first aid trauma
3: anesthesiologist it's the same like intensive care specialist in our country
0: thanks and the last one for me before i um open the floor to david it, it was you say it was kicked off by christopher katron but how are you funded on a regular basis now and where do you get your supplies from and are you do you have any critical gaps either in specialisms of of individuals or the um or the supplies you're getting through
2: Thanks, Dom. The MOAS does not receive a dollar from the American government or a pound from the British government. It receives no government funding at all. It relies exclusively on individual donations. There are a number of wealthy American donors who've been extremely generous. But there's always a concern that those sort of the wealthiest donors can also lose interest. The war Israel-Hamas has already distracted attention from Ukraine, which, which is a real concern. The overall size I mentioned earlier, 150 medics in 50 ambulances, it's costing over a million dollars a month to run this operation. So it's, it's a huge undertaking. Chris has put a lot of his own money into this as well. But the, the seeking donations is, is a constant, really. And the equation is no, no fundraising, no MOAS, no MOAS Ukrainian soldiers will die. But I don't think there would be shortages of um, in terms of f- filling spaces. The, the MOAS is, is at the size it is now with the sort of finances that it has in place.
1: Well, thanks, Justin and Oksana. Yeah, a couple of more questions from me. I'm quite interested to hear from you about how you think uh, your operation has changed in the past year, particularly on the medical side. I mean, what what have you learned from doing this day in, day out? And how, how have you changed what you've done to make it more effective? Thanks.
3: For this, uh, for my experience, I think uh, now we have more severe injured uh, patients, and uh, now maybe let this couple of maybe three weeks, last three weeks, we have a very lot of calls,
2: a lot, a lot of a lot of emergency callouts,
3: and all patients like red. We it, they take they need high qualified and emergency like urgent uh, medical aid.
1: Thanks, Oksana. Justin, would you would you add anything to that?
2: I think one of the, I suppose, obvious things would be the locations have changed, but that's just a function of how the war has evolved. So MOAS goes where it's needed. As the front line has changed, the MOAS follows it behind the front line. Some of the locations have received more fire than I think was the case in the earliest days. It remains a, a, a very dangerous occupation for o- Oksana and, and teams like hers. And I think also, as Oksana just referred to, there is there has been a greater casualty count. We don't talk about numbers. The Ukrainian government doesn't talk about numbers. But anecdotally and unfortunately, teams like Oksana's are are extremely busy.
1: Absolutely. Well, looking back over the past 19, 20 months for both of you, what, what are the memories that really stand out? I don't know who would like to go first, Oksana or Justin.
3: Maybe some severe injured patients when uh, they had like uh, clinical death, cardiac arrest, and then they survived. It's maybe the best memories from my work there
2: i 've talked to to a number of the medics in the teams, and they tell us that being extremely professional medics, they have to remain dispassionate and not not involved emotionally, but frequently they also have a green patient sometimes in their vehicles who's like, more like walking wounded who then tells them all sorts of fairly heartrending stories. For me personally, I found it a very strange mixture of at times exhilaration when you feel you're doing a good job responding to a a critical need. And then very dark moments of sort of close to despair when you see the what has been referred to as the butcher's bill of this war. And you see young men out on in an operating theater or in the back of an ambulance, extremely badly injured. I was looking at some photographs today of the, of the MOAS time in Ukraine. And there, there's one picture of an ambulance with a, it's a, a sort of a, a swimming pool of blood in the back. And some of the injuries have been absolutely horrendous. But I think MOAS is, is, an, is an amazing organisation and, and a force for good. And God knows it would be a lot worse if, if MOAS or organisations like this were not doing what they do and people like Oksana, who are literally saving lives every day.
1: Could we talk a little bit about the next few months? Obviously, the temperature is dropping, winter is approaching. How, I mean, will, will what you do change because of that? And and if so, how so?
3: To compare with the winter, next previous months was, was really busy, very, very busy. We don't have such, such a lot of patients in winter, actually, as there was no so much, so bad injuries.
1: So hopefully a, sli- a slightly less um, busy time for you, Oksana. Justin, from your perspective, will it, will anything change going into the next few months? Will there be new new priorities or new ways of doing what you do?
2: I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I don't have the length of time in country that Oksana has. So I, I couldn't compare it with the I wasn't here in a, in a previous winter. But I, I, I think one I, I hopes as well that the the casualty count will come down markedly as operations become less intensive. I think there's a great hope for that. I think there is looking ahead, though. There's also that kind of the I mean, I, I felt it just in my last two weeks here, for example, the media interest. We know media attention can be rather short term sometimes. And there is a concern that Ukraine might be more neglected or more forgotten with the, the terrible new conflict in the Middle East as well. So that, that, that remains a concern for sure.
1: Well, thank you so much, Justin and Oksana. Just a final question from me. I mean, is there anything we haven't asked you about that you think is important to speak about that you would want um, our listeners around the world to understand about the work you do and the reality of, of the war in Ukraine as you see it?
3: Okay, so I would like to read to you a epigraph from Hemingway's for whom the bell tolls. Is, is it okay?
1: Please, please.
3: <sighs> no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clot be washed away by the sea, Europe is less. As well as if a promontory were as well as any manner of their friends of their own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee.
2: Thank you, Oksana. Justin. Fantastic. Thank you. Earlier this summer, we had a visit from the Rolling Stone magazine and I just wanted to end with a few words from the journalist Adam hay Nichols's conclusion. And he writes, It was only after the February 2022 invasion that Western governments took notice and decided to help. This is referring back to the, the earlier Russian invasion of 2014. MOAS was ahead of them on that, preempting the war and getting its logistics lined up a month in advance. But they and Ukraine need more support. Countries like the US, UK and Germany are providing weapons, but nowhere near enough aid. Katrin Boney and his 150 medics are carrying the can. That land cruiser I drove over is already saving lives, lots of them, before I even get out of the, got out of the country. I understand where the indomitable will of this people now comes from. Ukraine is a beautiful country and it must remain free. Sergei is right. There will be no surrender. So I, my message would be, please don't forget Ukraine. Um, If you're interested in what the sort of work that MOAS is doing, please have a look at the website. And if anyone is interested in, in donating, it's moas.eu forward slash donate. And that's moas, M-O-A-S dot E-U forward slash donate. And thank you very much for that opportunity to share our story with you, Dom and Andrew.
1: Thank you very much, Justin and Oksana. Dom Nichols, can I come to you for your very final thoughts?
0: Yes, thanks. And Justin, thanks for, um, for saying how folks can donate there. I have actually had a few messages... As we've been talking, asking how they can how folk can uh, can help, so thank you for that, and you can actually help me out with my final thought. My final thought here is about how much longer the fighting season in its current form is going to last. you know winters are going to set in, and before that we're going to have some very difficult environmental conditions before before everything f- freezes. Now we know Russia has been getting a resupply of ammunition from North Korea, especially. we know they've been mobilizing personnel by stealth, as I mentioned earlier on. But the armored vehicles they are losing and other equipment around Avdivka, they are much, much harder to replace, let alone to train on. Russia seemingly decided that Avdivka is worth the sacrifice there, possibly for symbolic reasons, a bit like Bakhmut, for the reasons I was saying earlier. But they're going to need to get a bit of a move on if they want to take that city before everything grinds to a frozen halt. And so I would expect there to be uh, this to be a very another very, very violent week in that area. And I just wonder if if so with that thought in mind, whether before you address your final thought, Justin and, and Oksana, whether or not you could give us a view on what the weather is, literally what the weather is at the moment in the areas you've been traveling around in. How much longer do you think it's going to be before winter really starts to bite where you are?
2: I'm not an expert on Ukrainian winters, Dom, at all. I might ask Oksana for her thoughts on that in a second. But as we're speaking, it's about 21 degrees and sunny, slightly strange. Autumn is here, but it's it's actually feeling like late summer at the moment. But I'm assuming the temperatures will start plunging quite soon, the back end of October into November.
3: Uh, I don't know actually as well but you know where is the evil and I think the worst will be in our world until this evil live. I think Oksana's talking
2: about the, the Russian evil.
1: Well, Thank you Dom, uh, Justin and Oksana. Any final thoughts Justin and Oksana before we wrap up?
3: Just help Ukraine.
2: And yes I, I think really e- echoing Oksana's thoughts that, you know, if, if it is going to become harder for the conflict in Ukraine to remain at this very high level of awareness, that is going to be a problem. So, yes, please um, keep the interest going, keep the support going. Thanks so much for your excellent Ukraine podcast, which is doing precisely that. MOAS depends on a a certain level of awareness and interest in in its operations and I was inspired enough to come and join them part-time having just visited them and and never heard of MOAS earlier this spring but so interested in and impressed by the work they they do here it is literally about saving lives that's what they do day in day out and thank god they're here and, and they need all the support that's available people like Oksana who are just doing very heroic work day in day out exhausting long days and seeing horrendous injuries and, and keeping these poor men and women alive.
1: Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live block on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow the Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, Do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing UkrainePod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine the latest was produced by Charles Keir, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50